The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Now, Exoordinary Mind Facts. The original dream of the web is dying. Facebook, Google, Twitter, Medium, and YouTube entice us to give them our creative work. They control what gets amplified and what gets monetized. A few conference rooms in Silicon Valley dictate our online culture. It's time to take it back. Stop giving away your work to people who don't care about it. Host it yourself. Distribute it via methods you control. Build your audience deliberately and on your own terms. Be in charge of the relationship with your audience. Avoid unnecessary middlemen. Always own your platform. We do at Veritas Radio. Remembering the past can sometimes predict the future. First, they will come for independent media. Then, they will come for independent thinkers. And that is you. Now, on to this week's Veritas interview. I'm Exo. Good night. Tonight, we discuss the Rendlesham Enigma. The Rendlesham Forest incident is the most intriguing and best documented UFO case in the world, and is second only to Roswell, New Mexico, in terms of name recognition. However, in truth, it is a far more significant event than Roswell. There is scarcely no other UFO case anywhere in the world which can boast such a large number of apparently highly credible witnesses on two separate nights, or such a wide variety of supporting evidence that includes physical traces and confirmation by two Air Forces, the United States Air Force and the Royal Air Force, an official memo confirming the events written by a high-ranking USAF officer, a real-time tape recording made during the second night of the sighting by the same Air Force officer and many, many more. Tonight's discussion includes witness, experiencer, and a first responder, and ultimately investigator, who will share his experience about the investigation of a craft of unknown origin located just outside Royal Air Force Woodbridge, England, in December of 1980, where his team was the first responders in the investigation of the craft. This case became to be known as the Randall Forest Incident and is the most documented account in military history. We'll also discuss findings associated with the seven sets of coordinates deciphered from the pages of the binary code that Jim Penniston claims he received during the Rendlesham incident. Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to discuss this most important case, tonight's special guests are retired U.S. Air Force Security Forces Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston and alternative history author Gary Osborne. They have both co-authored the new book titled The Rendlesham Enigma, which will be out in a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. You can pre-order right now. 
and we have a full bio right on our website. And I'd like to welcome Jim Peniston and Gary Osborne. Hello, Jim and Gary, and welcome to Veritas. Hi. Hello, Mel. Hi, Mel. My pleasure to have you on. And Jim, as we discussed offline, we've known, we discussed this, you and I, many, many years ago, and I'm glad that finally we get to have you back. And Gary, you are co-authoring this new book. I believe it's a supplement to what we already have discussed in the past, but you're adding a lot of new information. So I'm very curious to discuss this. But for the people in our worldwide audience that might not be aware, and I really doubt it, might not be aware of the Rangelsum incident, why don't we give a synopsis as to what happened? Well, uh, the air bases, there's two twin air bases, uh, three miles apart, and they were located about 60 miles south, or excuse me, northwest of London, England. And uh, it was during the Cold War, around 1980. And uh, what happened was we were working a uh, midnight shift, and um, I responded to a uh, call from uh, our central security control uh, to contact uh, two uh, airmen out at the uh, east gate on the far perimeter of the base. And uh, when I responded, I, uh, I found two very agitated and excitable people and uh, i talked to sergeant stephens who was the uh and this is when jim this exactly when uh december 26 uh 1980 oh boy i'm gonna get into talking about it now i'm sorry um sure (laughs) and this was at midnight this was at midnight jim wasn't it yes it was around midnight do you want me to yeah oh yeah please dive in Okay, yeah, so after I arrived there and I was talking to Sergeant Stephens, says, what's going on, bud? And he says, uh, pointed over to the uh, Rendlesham Forest area, which is a wooded area adjacent to uh, the east gate of Woodbridge. And I could see, uh, you know, flickering light inside the forest. And uh, then I could also see a dome of white light over it. So it looked like, to me, maybe something was on fire. And I says, uh, so my next question to bud was, uh, uh did you see a crash? And he goes, it didn't crash. He says, it landed. And I says, well, that's impossible to land there in the forest. I mean, uh, no aircraft could do that. And so I asked him repeatedly. I said, uh, did you uh, did you see a crash? And he goes, it didn't crash, Jim. He said, it landed. And I, it just did not make no sense what he was saying. So I went to the direct line we had at the uh, East Gate, which uh, law enforcement desk passed me through to the control center. And uh, I talked to, immediately when I talked to them, I had like five people on the line. I had uh, the security controller, Sergeant Coffey. I had Sergeant Dillard, the comm plotter. I had Mass Sergeant uh, Chandler. He was the uh, uh, flight sergeant. I had uh, Lieutenant Brand. And uh, I thought this is an awful lot of tension for, for just one phone call. And uh, I said to him, I said, it appears to be a, aircraft downing out in the uh, East Gate area by Rendlesham. And uh, immediately when when I said that, I had one of the controllers, Sergeant Coffey, he was contacting Eastern Radar, London Radar, Bentwaters Radar, and, you know, trying to find out if there was anything to what I was saying. And uh, he came right back in about, you know, a few minutes and said that uh, we... Uh, had a uh, aircraft, a bogey, 
on radar, but we lost contact with it 15 minutes ago over, you know, Woodbridge Base. So at that point in time, it made complete sense that we had an aircraft downing. An emergency situation did exist from that point on. I took over operational command uh, at the East Gate, and uh, uh, we, we got permission from the Wing Command Post, who was in contact with the base commander, Colonel Conrad, and um, we got permission to deploy off base. Uh, myself and two other airmen, a security airman and a uh, law enforcement airman. Uh, I deployed off base with my crash kit, aircraft crash kit, because I still thought it was a crashed aircraft. And we drove the Jeep as far as we could. Uh, uh, there was just a lot of earthen berms and stuff like that, even though we had a CJ-7. Uh, I was afraid it was going to tip it over. And uh, I, once we got as far as I thought we could go, we were also experiencing radio difficulties, which was uh, unheard of at that point. And so Airman Cabanza, the security airman, I decided to leave him there by the Jeep, and we can use that as an entry control point for the you know responding emergency forces like fire department, medical, uh, the crash team, all those other people that would be able to funnel through that area. Uh, and then myself and the law enforcement airmen uh, uh, proceeded to go to the crash site. Uh, the only extra equipment I grabbed out of the crash kit was the uh, camera. Uh, usually when you go to a crash site, there is no survivors. And usually you're taking pictures of either classified or or um, human remains or something like that, and tagging it. And so we uh, started to head toward the uh, uh, Reynoldsville Forest uh, uh, perimeter of it. And uh, as we got closer, the lights weren't flashing like they were. There was more like a glowing light coming out of the wood, wooded area just inside the tree line. And after I... You know, so I started taking pictures. I took pictures from that point on uh, to record for it. And uh, as I got in there, uh, maybe 10 feet, 15 feet inside, uh, the light had dissipated down quite a bit. And then there was a huge flash of light. And I guess out of reaction, you know, we both hit the ground uh, thinking it was an explosion. But there just was no explosion. It was just a flash of light. I got back up, brushed myself off, walked a few more feet, and uh, I could see uh, the light uh, dissipating down. I could start seeing a, uh, a viewing of a structured craft. And uh, so at this point in time, I'll call this the sphere of influence. It was the area like within 10, 15 feet of the craft. And uh, that area was still lit up from underneath the craft. Uh, there was still light coming out of that. Uh, the structure of the craft uh, was uh, black, triangular. And uh, it had uh, multiple globular-type lights running through this fabric, the skin of the craft. And they were slowly starting to slow down. And as I got up over the burn. I could see the full craft, and the, the, the lights had dissipated, the, the colored lights in the craft's skin. And um, then it just appeared as a, a black, opaque craft, uh, shiny, 
uh, uh, glass-like. Uh, and uh, I had uh, turned over to my right, and about 20 feet behind me was the other law enforcement airman who was just standing there immobilized. Uh, I don't know if he was just scared to death or what, but he was outside this area of light we were in, I was in. And uh, so I thought he was a casualty at that point because there was no movement. Uh, I had expelled all the film. And uh, so I took my notebook out. and When you say he was, he, you thought he was dead, was it because he was t almost in a catatonic state? Well, I don't know. Everything outside this sphere of influence, this, this immediate area around the craft, I mean, there was physical things that were, were going on when I started entering this. I mean, uh, there was a, a feeling of uh, labored movements, like, uh, uh, like uh, walking through a pool of water, okay? Um, and there was electrical uh, uh, static on my skin, clothes, and hair. Almost like time uh, stop outside of this bubble? That's the way it appeared. Looking back in retrospect, that's the way it appeared for sure. Um, yeah, it looked like it, it, there was something, something that was caused by this technology uh, that I can't explain. And what happened well, next? Well, anyway, as... Uh, as I started, you know, uh, figuring that, well, maybe there, you know, I might not survive this. I, uh, I knew at that point in time it wasn't aircraft crash, obviously. So I had the hopes of hearing, uh, that central security control would hear me. I initiated a helping hand situation, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a security threat that could uh, evolve, could affect the operational resources of the base of Priority A, Priority B, Priority C resources. And so I, with the hopes of them hearing me, which they did, I find out later, uh, they initiated a helping hand situation uh, to the command post. So at that point in time, it was no longer an aircraft crash, it was a security situation. Um, I was unarmed, uh, so I figured I'm most likely a casualty to be. So I started taking notes, and I started to do as much investigation as I could while I was still alive. So I paced off the uh, craft. Uh, my my gate, you know, my uh, when I'm walking is about three feet, you know, and stretched out. So I did three of them, so that was about nine feet long, uh, and it was that way equal all the way around. I started looking for. It was probably uh, six and a half, seven feet high. I'm not exactly sure because it was sitting in between two berms of uh, earth in a forest. Uh, it was I, levitating, I, right? Well, it was fixed on the ground. It looked like uh, somehow. Matter of fact, it brought my curiosity up. I did uh, go ahead and look underneath it, and all I could see is light coming down from the uh, craft itself, white light, or yellowish light. And uh, so I tried to move it the craft itself and it wouldn't move. So somehow it was fixed um, to the ground through light or this technology. Um, Let me interject for a second here, Jim. Mm -hmm. Because I've, I've always wondered, obviously you, you had jurisdiction over this and you, you were there close to the craft, but what were you thinking when you were so close to it without knowing what kind of material uh, it could be radioactive, it could explode, all those things. What was going through your mind that you got so close? 
this technology wasn't ours. That's what went through my mind, along with a lot of emotion. I mean, from fear to panic to lots of things, um, to the fact that at, at some point I was just in awe of what I was looking at. And, uh, yeah, it was a mixture of all those emotions. It's, it's really crazy. And, uh, anyway, so I, uh, decided to take as many notes and hopefully record enough information down so if I don't survive, at least my command element would be able to make decisions later on up to what actually was transpiring out there. And um, so as I walked around the craft, I um, seen some kind of writing on the far side of it, which actually gave me some relief because I was hoping it would say something like, Nassau, uh, you know, a Russian sickle on it, uh, anything, <laughs> right. you know, would have been uh, 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 something that would, uh, I was looking for. And when I got around to it, I, I did not see, uh, you know, normal markings on, on, the, on the craft itself. I seen like uh, pictographs, uh, symbols that were etched into the uh, fabric of the craft, uh, which I found fascinating uh these measured about these symbols uh about three to four inches high uh they stretch maybe three feet wide uh total uh the the total amount of them and uh, on the top of it was another symbol with a triangular shape on it and several small circles and uh you can see those glyphs on the promotional image and in the in the book cover as well. These were they lights or were they engraved? Uh, they were engraved. Uh, I'll tell you how I'll explain engraved. The the fabric of the of the craft itself is like smooth glass. That's what it felt like. And when I ran my hand from the smooth glasses of the fabric to the actual uh, uh, glyphs, uh, it felt like uh, uh, going to a to a fine grade uh, sandpaper. That's what they. So that's why I use the term etched. And um, so I, I I checked those out and recorded them down in the notebook. Continued to walk around, do a three sixty uh, examination of the craft itself. And uh, I was on my on my second turn turn around the the, the craft and. Uh, I stopped at those, the, the glyphs again. And, uh, as I looked at them, I, I started touching them then. And I reached up and I touched the, the, the top signal, uh, symbol with a, a triangular shaped one. And there was a flash of light where I could not see. It. Uh, it was just pure white blinding light. Uh, I don't know how long my hand was on there. I can't imagine too long, and uh, I just sort of got my senses back, and I just lifted my hand back off, and the light was gone, and it was, you know, and and I had, you know, at that point in time, I had these ones and zeros flashing through my head, and uh, the thing that was, it wasn't light because I had my night vision. Uh, usually night vision from something that bright would take your eyes to adjust again 30, 40 minutes maybe. 
Uh, I had I had uh, complete night vision even after I touched it. So I don't know what kind of technology it was. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.